Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the founder that we have today, someone that has done it multiple times. You know, he's built, financed, scaled, exited. I mean, you name it so many times that uh, I was kind of like losing already, you know, the 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 my head, you know, out of how many times he's done it. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Wasim Daher. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So... Your parents, you know, were from Lebanon. You know, obviously, you know, uh, when you have immigrant parents and, and, and you get that inspiration too because you see them working so hard. I mean, I'm an immigrant myself, so I really understand, you know, what, what that looks like. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Sure. I mean, it's kind of as you expect, which is, I think, in, in many ways, a very classic, as you said, kind of raised by immigrant parents who came to this country with very little sort of story, which is, both of my parents were born and raised in this tiny village in the middle of Lebanon. And they, and basically their relatives and friends, like everyone from that village, pretty much moved to the United States in the kind of 70s or 80s, mostly in the kind of like Cleveland area. And like half of them became small business owners of various kinds, like bars, coffee shops, that kind of thing. The other half became doctors. My parents were a little bit of an outlier in that way, but it's like I was surrounded by this notion that, yeah, you know, really valuing hard work, really valuing family, you're really valuing community. And you also were this nerdy kid in school. So, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, so what got you into the whole computer thing? Because you ended up landing at MIT later on, but, um, but the computers, how did you, you know, get into computers? That's a good question. And so, you know, it's interesting. Um, my uncles, I collaborated to buy the first computer for me and my brother and my sister. It was like, I think a Christmas gift one year. And I was just, I don't know, I was very into it. Like there were computer games and stuff, but also just like it, 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 was, an opera, it was a place where you could just explore and do stuff. And I think I always liked that kind of thing. Like, of course, I was very into Legos and building things. Like all of that, I think, is kind of related. And then you ended up going to MIT. And MIT obviously, you know, made a pivotal, you know, thing in your, in your career, not only because of the lessons learned, but then also because of the network. Absolutely. I mean, for our three startups that me and my co-founders have done together, it's been the same founding team, basically. And we all met in MIT undergrad. Like, we were all there. We were studying computer science together. We were in the computer club together. Like, the, the network impact was huge, absolutely. And for you, I mean, it was a, a little of here and there as a software engineer, you know, at the beginning. You know, you were doing some internships. I mean, you explored how it would look like at Amazon, at Google, at OkCupid. But literally right away, you went at it, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, with the co-founders that you met in MIT. So why did you go at it like so young? You know, I, I kind of like right, right after, you know, school kind of thing. Yeah, in some ways. So first of all, it's that my, one of my co-founders, Jeff, had developed this technology as part of his master's thesis. And he actually was quite excited about it. He said, hey, I think this thing really has legs. I want to do a startup. Do you want to do it with me? And my, it wasn't an obvious decision. But I think my thinking at the time was like, I want to do it eventually. I'd like to do a company eventually. And what is the downside to doing it now? And I think my perspective was, and look, this is a, a luxury to be able to say this. 
my perspective was, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go back to the Google or the Amazon or the whatever. As you saw, you know, I had a bunch of these internships previously. So I sort of had confidence that if this totally failed, you know, I could return to being a software engineer somewhere. And so it, as a consequence, it did not seem as risky as maybe it, it might have. And quite techy, what you guys were doing at K-Splice. What were you guys doing there? Yeah, so we had some technology that could take software updates and install them without rebooting. I'm sure you've seen that pop up. That's like, you must reboot to install new updates. We had tech that could take those and kind of magically transform them so that you could apply them on the system while it was running. And that, that's, you know, that's not really that useful on your laptop or your phone. The idea is these server systems where the downtime is really expensive. You might have thousands and thousands of them. Like the target was these kind of like large scale server IT administrators. And you were alluding to earlier, I mean, the different companies that you've built, now three of them, you've always had the same co-founders, Jeff Arnold and Jessica McKellar. So why? What makes this uh, trio or these three musketeers, you know, so effective at building companies? Why are you guys so good together? Sure. Well, at this point, I think one of the reasons we're so good together is because we have worked together a lot. And so it's sort of like, you know, there's a virtuous, uh, you know, virtuous cycle in that way. Here's what I would say. I think like the key elements to making it work are deep mutual trust and respect and actually like clear and distinct areas of ownership. Like we work together well because we know when we need to actually work together and we know when we need to not work together. In other words, what falls into any one person's domain. And like no one's relationship is perfect, of course. Like, obviously, there's still occasional voices raised or tears shed or drama. We occasionally still annoy the heck out of each other. But it works and is productive because we know how to work well together. And what that means is we can actually focus on making the business successful as opposed to focusing on the logistics of figuring out how to work together. And what about on the logistics? Because, for example, on K-Splice, you were there, the COO, and now you're the CEO of Pilot. So how do you think that the dynamics between you guys have also shifted to, you know, for you now to take the CEO versus taking a COO role like you did on K-Splice? Yeah, I think the title change actually has not really materially changed what it is that Jeff and I each spend time on. I think if you looked at the portfolio of what were we each doing at K-Splice, what were we each doing at Zulep, what are we each doing at Pilot? It's actually probably pretty similar to how it used to be in the sense that I do think for the really big strategic and important decisions of the company, they are really made by Jeff, Jessica, and me together. And I, I think there's, there's something interesting about that, which is if we don't all agree, I'm not saying we run the company by consensus, we don't, but if we don't all agree, well, look, they're smart, talented people. Probably what that suggests is Maybe there's something they see that I don't. Maybe we should talk it through a little bit more. It's a good prompt to say, let's spend a little more time together on this. And if we still don't agree and the decision has to be made, well, look, I'm the CEO. I will make the decision. But it's, I think, a healthy prompt for, well, maybe there's more here than you might, you might initially think. And how do you get to that point of trust? Well, I think you just got to put in the hours, right? It's like the, the reason it works for us is we were all friends together at MIT. We were all, you know, we were in a bunch of classes. We'd work together on stuff. We'd work on projects together. But I think the, the place where that deep trust was forged was at that first company, which is actually just doing it together and experiencing the highs and the lows and the pains and the joys. So would you say that um, 
after this experience of now having built three companies with them, team versus idea. What are your thoughts? Strongly, strongly team. And just to make the point even more explicit, for both the second company and for the third company, like when we left Oracle, we were like, we want to do another company together. We all got together and we said, okay, what are we going to do? And same for the third company. And the point is, for each of us, it was like, we know this is a good team. We want to work together with this team. I want to work with smart, talented people who are going to challenge me to do good work, where I feel like I've got a great dynamic. And what we do matters, but it actually matters a lot less than the team. I would work on basically anything with this team. So then let's talk about case plays. Let's, let's go back to, to case plays. How did you guys capitalize the business? And how was that process to getting it all the way to the acquisition, which was acquired by Oracle? Hey, first company, first exit. Not bad. Yeah, not too bad at all. So the case play story is a very interesting one because there was sort of a combination of things that enabled it. We bootstrapped it. We did not raise any venture capital for the business. But we, got, we did a couple of things sort of non-traditionally to finance it. One is we won a couple of business playing competitions, actually. There was one at MIT called the MIT 100K competition, which we won. We'd entered the business in the early days. And then we got a grant from the US government from the National Science Foundation. There's a thing called an NSF SBIR grant. So through the combination of like a little bit of grant money, a little bit of just initial capital from that business playing competition, and then we just had a product we sold to people. Now, it also helped, by the way, that we kept our expense rates super low and that we were all, you know, 22 and eating ramen and living together in a like kind of crappy apartment in Cambridge. So our expenses were low. We kind of had that initial capital. And then we just worked very aggressively to get a product into the hands of our customers that generated revenue for us. So we, we bootstrapped it. And I think importantly, that led to, I think, a very, very healthy appreciation for basically the value of the dollar. And like, hey, you actually have to build a business with sustainable economics was a lesson that was deeply ingrained in us in that first venture. So let's talk about the acquisition. How did the acquisition you know, happen with, with Oracle? It's, it's interesting because to this day, I feel like I still don't really understand. And here's what I mean by that. One of the things that I think is a bit of a misconception is I think many founders or entrepreneurs believe that like, oh, one day I wake up, I decide I want to sell my business and I like go out there and I look for buyers. And I'm not saying that that isn't possible, but that's probably not going to get you outcomes that you're particularly excited about. Because to really get an outcome that's going to be interesting for you and for the acquirer, there kind of has to be the strategic alignment. It's like, why strategically does this company benefit from having what we do? And in the case of Oracle, I think like, you know, two years prior, we had met with them and we talked to them about, hey, this is our capability. We can do this rebootless update thing on Linux. We think it could be of, of real interest to your enterprise customers. And then we like just didn't hear anything for a while, like a long time, like years. And then just one day, kind of out of the blue, they sort of got in touch with us. And I think the thing that was puzzling to me was like, why? Why on that particular day did they choose to reach out? What actually was the catalyst? And it, the inputs to that are very complicated, right? It's like, what else is going on with the company? There are other strategic priorities, the mood of any given person on a given day. It's like, there's a lot of serendipity that goes into this stuff. And I think the only thing you can really do, I think, to sort of maximize the probability of a good acquisition outcome is a little bit paradoxical, which is, don't build towards acquisition. Build a thing that your customers actually want and want to give you money for 
grow the customer base, demonstrate that it's valuable, and then potential acquirers end up seeing that. And obviously ended up being in the seven figures, so quite a good outcome for, for everyone. So you guys were there for about a year, a little bit over a year doing, you know, what it's called the vesting and resting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so much resting, but I'm sure that, sure. you know, there was a point, you know, in time where, you know, the three Musketeers, you know, got back together, you know, thinking about another problem that they were excited about and, you know, bringing that solution to cover that problem. And it eventually became Sulip, you know, which was the next company. I mean, how did you guys time that? I mean, did you guys like count to three and then gave your notice at the same time at Oracle? Or how did that happen? So first of all, it was an eight-figure exit. Not, okay. not that the details really matter. Nice. But yes, exactly what you said, which is basically a year and a day after the Oracle acquisition, we sort of knew we still wanted to do another startup. We wanted to get the band back together. It's basically exactly as you described, which is we made clear to the team it's not like one day we surprised them. We sort of make clear to the team, listen, we think Oracle's a great company. We're glad you're excited about this technology. We're, we are committed to making this transition successful. But I want to just be clear, this is not going to be the long-term home for the founders. We intend to go and do something new. So then at what point do you realize that that's something new, you know, it's knocking and it's time to get going? I think for us, we sort of had this idea that we thought a year would be a good amount of time to just kind of transition over the tech. And there were, of course, some incentives to remain for a year. But we sort of basically a year and a day, we all got together, like in one of our apartments and said, okay, what's the next thing going to be? How do we get started on it? So give us a, a little of an insider view on that. You know, what happened in that apartment get together? I think the question was, okay, what problems do we have that we think need to be solved where we think we are good potential solvers for those problems? Or maybe here's a more structured framework. I think for every business, I think for a successful business, you need a couple of key elements. Element number one is you need a large market size. You need to be solving a problem that is big and painful so that when you succeed, you have actually potentially built you know, a multi-billion dollar business. So you need to target kind of a big media opportunity. So the importance of the market size is key. The second kind of question is like, why now? Meaning what has changed about the world to enable this company to exist? Like probably, again, the scarce resource is not the idea. Lots of people have great ideas. Why doesn't this company already exist? What has changed about the world that makes this the time and place for this business? And then the third question is, why this team? Why is this team uniquely going to be able to execute on this particular problem? And that, that's kind of the framework that we used. I don't know that we had it so explicitly nailed when we were thinking about the second business, but certainly by the time that we were thinking about the third business, that was kind of the framework we had to say, fine, how do we evaluate the caliber of any idea, which is market size, why now, why us? And, and basically, like, how hard is it going to be? Or what, what's the easiest way to really test that the market is interested in this particular thing? Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept 
really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So tell us then about Sulip. So then you guys, you know, land on the idea of Sulip. So what was the business model there and how are you guys making money? Sure. So the insight on Zulip, um, which I think was was spot on. I think I have some comments in our execution, but I think the insight was spot on at the time. This was, I think, like, August 2012. And the insight was, listen, the, the group chat experience at work is actually pretty awful. And in many ways, it has dramatically lagged behind what consumers were used to in their personal lives. Like in your personal life, you know, August 2012, you had the iPhone or the Android phone, like you had pretty robust kind of one-on-one -on -one and group messaging. But at work, you were still using like, I don't know, this like, almost like early 2000s, late 90s, like chat technology. And it was one on one based, there was not really robust group chat, your options were sort of like IRC, which was kind of the domain of, you know, nerds like us, or basically like a jabber server, it was like the, the state of the world was very clearly going to look different in the future than it did in the present. And that became clear to us because, again, we had sort of played around with this stuff ourselves. We said, we think we can build the solution that will actually, you know, make, make workplace chat at work a lot more robust and a lot better. And I think if you look at the success of Slack as a business, they really, really did a solid job of executing on kind of that insight or that thesis. But this company, I mean, it was saying it didn't take that long. To get acquired, I mean, we're talking not even about not even two years before the acquisition materialized with Dropbox. In this case, I mean, you guys had some liquidity, you know, from the previous acquisition from from Oracle from Caseplice. So, how did you go about financing the operation? So, with this company, it was a with Zulip, it was much more kind of on the traditional venture capital path, meaning we had raised a bunch of money from angel investors kind of right out of the gate. I think it was like 1.5, 1.6 million, something like that. And basically we called up essentially investors and advisors who we connected with in our first venture. And we said, you know, we're getting at it again. We're gonna do another company with this founding team. Are you interested in getting on board? So we raised a fairly substantial at the time um, angel round. And the plan was to go raise a venture series A and all that other stuff. and while we were kind of in market exploring the Series A options, the Dropbox offer kind of came on the table and was very interesting. So how did that offer come on the table? 
you know, again, it's like these these things are so driven by things that are broadly out of your control. So in the case of Dropbox specifically, like Drew and Arash, the founders, were MIT alums. And I knew Drew specifically from my time at MIT. And so he was aware of actually what we had been doing with K-Splice. He had followed along with that journey. He was familiar with the tech. He was familiar with the caliber of the team. And so one is that he personally kind of like knew and could vouch for the team being great. And two was that it was very aligned with kind of Dropbox's strategic priorities at the time, where the view at the time was, look, we're really good at the kind of file sync, file sharing thing, but we want to sort of do more at work. We want to not just be about files. We also want to be about communication, about collaboration, about collaborative editing. And so there's a bunch of other stuff that Dropbox was doing at the time that, that the kind of concept of like a group chat at work sort of folded into that very nicely. So then here you go again. You know, second company, second exit. How many figures sure. are we talking about? Is, again, a kind of eight-figure outcome. My God, got to respect the eight <laughs> figures. Now, in this case, for you guys, you know, again, you know, you passed the two-year mark, you know, that vesting uh, a period. And then the three of you, you know, again, got together on the apartment, you know, to discuss about market, to discuss about the why now. And then you arrive on your latest baby, which is Pilot. Now, with Pilot, you guys have been at it for over six years, which yes, is like uh, in dog years, especially, you know, the startup <laughs> life and, and given your previous, you know, experiences with case plies and, yes. and with and with Sulip, you know, obviously it's it's the longest you've ever been at a company pushing things together. So why Pilot? Sure. So Pilot was motivated by pain we felt very viscerally and very directly in our previous ventures. So first, maybe two seconds about what Pilot is. We do accounting, tax prep, fractional CFO work, principally actually for high growth startups, but for other companies. So in other words, you hire us and we do your accounting for you. And the way that we do it is we employ a bunch of accountants who are full-time employees of ours who sit in our office, who do the accounting. And then we're kind of building the Iron Man suit for them under the hood. We have an engineering team that builds a bunch of software that we use internally to do the work more accurately, more reliably, more consistently. And, th and the way we got here is that this was a huge pain point for us in our previous ventures in two ways. Pain number one was, again, remember the first company we bootstrapped. So we had no money. And so having no money, I think, sometimes caused us to make good decisions and sometimes caused us to make bad decisions. One of the bad decisions we made in the first company was not to hire an external accounting firm. It was, I bought a copy of QuickBooks and I was like, I'm pretty good at math. I'm just going to figure this out. And so as I was doing the bookkeeping, again, along with my co-founders and, and the other folks at the company, I think two things became very clear. Thing number one is, wow, this is tricky. You, you really do want the help of experts to get this right. But insight number two was, there's also a lot here that is really mechanical and tedious that the computer should be doing. Like we should be writing software to help do the work. And the reason to have the software do the work is not because it makes it more efficient, it actually makes it more accurate. And so those two ideas together are ultimately what form Pilot. It's the computer can help out a lot here, but also I don't wanna buy accounting software. What I want is a partner who can actually solve the problem for me. And that's a little bit like that's a little bit of a strange shape for a technology company. Probably the average 
technology founder would have said, I'm going to make an accounting software package that you buy and you use yourself. And we said, no, we want to solve the whole problem. We want to be the accountant for the company because that's what we wanted ourselves in the previous ventures. I didn't need another piece of accounting software. I needed like a trusted expert who effectively could be on my team. I mean, and, and in this case, how do you guys make money? Well, it's very straightforward. It's a subscription. You come to us, you pay us monthly or annually to help out with the accounting, with the tax prep, with the CFO services. And the same, you hire us basically instead of hiring the firm down the street that you might have worked with. And why would you say, especially now that you're on your third rodeo, why is it so important to be laser focused on the customer? Well, so th this is something I feel really strongly about, which is as a founder, you kind of have one job in a way. You have to make a thing that people want, that they'll pay you for, and that they'll tell their friends about. And if you're not doing that, it sort of doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter if you're exceptional at everything else, but you fall short at that particular objective, the business will not be successful. And so I think that's really clarifying. It's tempting to spend a bunch of time worrying about what are my competitors doing or you know, should, what, how should my office look or how should we think about this you know, decision ABC? It's like, if it's not ultimately in service of building a thing that your customers love and want to pay you money for, like, don't waste your time on it. And also, while you're being laser-focused on the customer, how do you go about not getting too much in the weeds? Sure. So I actually, I would say almost the opposite. I love to get in the weeds. I think you should get in the weeds. Why? It's a little bit counterintuitive. I think a lot of people think like, oh, you're building a thing at, at significant scale. Like, surely you should just build a process and like let the process run. And that would be true if you were 100% sure that you were building a process around a thing that was correct. And I think the thing that I've seen time and time again in startups is you have an imperfect view of the world. You have an imperfect view of the world formed by what you're hearing from your customers, from your prospects, just like from what you're, what you're hearing from other folks. And over time, that view is refined. And the way that that view is refined is by getting exposure to almost more data. And the problem with kind of like trying to build it into a scalable thing all at once is you are removing yourself from kind of that additional learning about the world that impacts how you think about what your customers want or don't want. And so I'd encourage folks to be overly scrappy, to overly get in the weeds, rather than to try to build the perfect process from day one and let it run. And as you're building the perfect process or the perfect company, how do you think about competition too? Yeah, so this, is a, this kind of goes back to my first point about if it's not in service of making the customer experience better, you shouldn't be doing it. And the danger with competition or with like thinking too much about your competition is your competition actually does not really matter. And here, here's why I say that. In almost every business, again, almost every business, not universally true, there's, it is very rare that there is truly a market dominating winner take all. Like even in categories that you think have obvious leaders, like for CRM, Salesforce is like the obvious name there. Salesforce's market share is like 30, 20-30%. That's, that's a lot, but it is not 50 or 70 or 90%. Like there is a robust system of other providers that do this stuff. And so it's, 
if the market is not winner take all, you should care less about what other people are doing. You should care more about what your customers are saying. If your customers are happy and they're giving you money and they're referring other people to you and they're promoting you, your business will be successful independent of what anyone else does. And if your customers are not happy and they're not promoting you, it doesn't matter what your competition is doing, your business will not be successful. But so the danger about spending a lot of time thinking about competitors is if it, if it is done instead of spending that time talking to your customers, I think that's a big miss. And just for the, uh, for the people that are listening to, in this case, I mean, you did finance, capitalized very well the operation. Um, how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, we raised about $160 million from Sequoia, Stripe, Jeff Bezos, and a bunch of other great folks. I mean, a bunch of other amazing folks. I mean, you have Howard Lerman from Yext. He actually was on the podcast very nice. recently. Adam D'Angelo, the founder of Quora. Drew, the founder of uh, Dropbox. Uh, we have a Paul English founder of Kayak. I mean, and I could keep going on and on and on with all these like rock stars that you have. I mean, how, how the hell did you land these people? Well, again, it's like this is this has been our, our sort of whole career in the making. It's like, these are folks that we encountered either through the MIT connections, through the K-Splice connections, through the Oracle connections, through the Zulba connections, through the Dropbox connections. Like over time, just like folks that have been in our network that have been excited about what we're up to and who wanted to kind of come along for the journey on, on this third one. And what does that process of activating your network, what does that look like? Especially for the people that are listening that are wondering, hey, you know, I've gone to great schools. I've built some great people that I have access to. How, how do you go about activating that? It's a good question. And I think it re requires like some real authenticity. Meaning the way that we cultivated these relationships was not like, oh, there's a task on my to-do list to like go network. It's really just sincerely like keeping folks up to date on what's happening with you and your business, asking them for help when and ask them for help when you need it. And I think that that's a little bit counterintuitive in the sense that like, the, the thing that's so exciting to me about so many of those investors are, these are folks that I would pay money to get advice from. And so the prospect of being able to get advice from them and being able to get funds from them is like very, very interesting. And that is only possible because we've sort of cultivated this relationship with them over, in some case, literally decades. Now, Obviously, you guys have been at it for about six years. So if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of pilot is fully realized, what does that world look like? So the, the basic, I think, desire for, for what are we up to? Ultimately, I think the, the mission and the mandate is pilot is your trusted partner who runs your back office for you, which causes your business to be more successful. And the like fundamental problem we're trying to solve is everyone in the world who starts a business of any kind, whether it's a tech company or a coffee shop or a doctor's office or whatever it is, they start it because there's something they're trying to do in the world. There's a product they're trying to make or a service they're trying to provide. And they're excited to commit their energy towards causing that to occur. And so they get started, they start their company or they, you know, they have the company up and running. And what they soon realize is there is way, 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 way more to running your business than just providing that product or service. There's all of this back office stuff. And the back office stuff is like particularly tricky because one, it's really important 
And the reason you can tell it's important is because big companies have entire teams devoted to running these operations well. And two is it's rarely the area of expertise of the business owner. And so really, I think, like, what does Pilot look like in the limit if we're super successful? It's, we should be doing all of this stuff for you. We should be doing it better, more reliably, more accurately, more scalably, certainly than you can do yourself or than anyone else can do it. And the consequence of that is your business should be more successful. Like if we could give you the finance team and the legal team and the recruiting team and the IT team and the real estate team, like we give you the powers that like a Fortune 500 company has in these departments, but we could use it to turbocharge your small business somewhere, like surely that would make your business more successful. And I think that's ultimately what we're looking to do. We're kind of like trying to democratize the capabilities that these huge companies have, and we're trying to bring them to the average business that's out there, starting with the accounting or starting with the financial back office. But certainly that's not the limit of the ambition. And definitely you guys have been, you know, well, you have been well on your way there because you've been growing like crazy. I mean, just on the employee count in the last year alone, according to LinkedIn Insights, we're talking about over 32% on the employee count. So how do you go about adding people so fast without breaking things on the culture? I mean, it's hard. It's hard, and I think it is ultimately requires you to lean very heavily on a robust hiring and onboarding process, which is like, first of all, you have to understand what the roles you're trying to hire are. You have to really crisply understand, like, what is it that we're trying to do with this role and what does success look like? And then you need to build an interview process that actually tests for that. And I think that sounds obvious, but people don't really do it. People like these kind of like, gimmicky gotcha interview questions or like, well, would I be friends with this person? It's like, that's actually not the question. The question is, are they going to excel in this role? So you have to design an interview process that really probes deeply on all of the things you think are needed for success in the role and can actually like form good decisions in a really principled, you know, way that minimizes bias that actually sets you and the potential employee up for success if you bring them on board. Now. We were talking about the future earlier, so let's talk about the past. But let's do that, you know, with the lens of of reflection here. Imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, and I'm able to take you back in time, back in time, you know, to that moment where you were still at MIT. You know, maybe at that point where you were, you know, getting together with Jessica, with Jeff. It was the three of you guys, you know, starting to uh, brainstorm about a future, a future where you could do something together, build a company of your own. If you could enter that room and be able to look at the three of you, the younger selves, and be able to give one piece of advice before launching a business, now that you are on company number three, exactly with the same co-founders, what would you tell your younger self, you know, obviously, and also Jeff and and Jessica, if the three of them were to listen, because typically our younger selves, you know, they, they don't listen that much. But let's say they are actually listening. Sure. I think probably, you know, interestingly, the first company we kind of almost stumbled into by accident, which is, again, it was kind of Jeff's master's thesis. We're like, the tech is cool. But like, we didn't know anything about how to run a business or how to evaluate a business. or whatever. So probably I would leave the team with the kind of framework we discussed, which is, being really thoughtful about market size, being really thoughtful about why now, being really thoughtful about why us, and that really laser, laser focus on staying extremely close to the customer 
to make sure you're really validating because you, what, you, what you ultimately have is a hypothesis about the world. You think the world behaves in a certain way, and your job is to kind of prove or disprove that hypothesis. And the way that you do that is you kind of have to really test it in the field. You have to talk to the customer. You have to make sure they're excited. Like, there's no substitute for that kind of like proximity or closeness. I love that. Now, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Great question. A uh, kind of bunch of options. Um, Certainly, email is always good. I'm just Wasim at pilot.com. You can also find my Substack. It's Wasim.substack.com. Uh, and I'm at Wasim on Twitter as well. And then on LinkedIn, I'm just LinkedIn slash in slash W Daher. So any, any of those would be great. Amazing. And then well, pilot is at pilot.com. We'd love for you to check us out there. Amazing. Well, Wasim, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. This was, it was great. I loved it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.